Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 84. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Just want to remind everyone that you can follow me on Facebook, like me on Twitter, and like my YouTube page. Just do a search for me, Brian with an O, McClanahan.com. My Facebook is Brian McClanahan. My Twitter is at Brian McClanahan. And same thing with my YouTube, Brian McClanahan. So go on out there and uh, do those things. Also, you can go to my webpage, BrianMcClanahan.com, and you can give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders. In American history, also corresponding with that is a for, is a free audiobook read by yours truly, Forgotten Founders in American History. So go out there and get those things. Plus, you're going to want to be on the email list. We're about two weeks away, I think, maximum from uh, the promotional release for my forthcoming How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. You're going to want that free stuff. So if you give me an email address, you're going to be first in line to know about it, and you're going to want to get those things that I'm giving away. Uh, and you'll be registered for a drawing for some pretty cool stuff, too, for a grand prize. If you uh, buy the book, if you pre-order the book, you're going to get free stuff, and then you might get more free stuff. I mean, this is going to be amazing. So you're going to want to go out there and do that, and you're going to want to tell your friends about it because uh, they're going to want to get this stuff, too. So uh, head on over to brianmcclanahan.com. Give me an email address. I'll give you some free stuff, and you could get more free stuff. Um, so it's uh, well worth your time. All right. Well, today I want to talk about um, something that uh, Tom Woods actually covered in a podcast a little while ago. He, and uh, it's uh, Gene, I'm sorry, Stephen Kizzer, excuse me, Stephen Kizzer's book, The True Flag. And uh, this is a, a book about the Spanish-American War and the debate between the imperialists and the anti-imperialists in the late 19th century. So I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But before I do that, I want to give kind of some background and why this particular topic and why this particular theme is interesting to me. Uh, when I started in college as an undergraduate, uh, I was not majoring in history. I thought I was going to do something else. And then um, I decided after taking uh, an education course, and I've talked about this, that no, I'm not going to do secondary education for, for history. I'm just going to go major in history. And I'm going to try to teach at the collegiate level. A lot of people told me that was foolish. Um, there's no jobs, and in reality, there aren't really many jobs. Uh, but I'm fortunate to, to have one teaching at a college at the college level. But uh, the interest that I had was actually spurred by one of my professors there, and his name uh, is Dean Fafudis. And uh, Dean Fafudis actually did not have a PhD. He was a, he was a master, master's degree lecturer at uh, Salisbury University. Uh, I don't know if he's still there or not. I haven't looked this up. But uh, Fafudis was a, <clears throat> a New Yorker 
who uh, really had a, a tough streak. Uh, he, was a, he was fair, but he was tough. And the class that really piqued my interest in doing history was his pro seminar in history, which was a, a 300-level course where you learned how to write a research paper. And Fafudis uh, was a diplomatic historian. And it got me the bug in, in, in wanting to do history. And not only that, wanting to do diplomatic history. I really like this, this field of diplomatic history. And so uh, he, was, he had studied under David Pletcher. Who, David Pletcher wrote a marvelous book on the uh, diplomatic angle of the war with Mexico. In fact, it's, it's entitled The Diplomacy of Annexation. And it's a really good book. I mean, Pletcher is a, is a prose pro. And so I, I was, it, it really wanted, it made me really want to get into doing this side of history. So I, I thought about doing diplomatic history. And in fact, uh, embarrassingly, I wrote some, some really bad research papers looking back at it now. They were just, he was so kind. Uh, Fafudis was so kind to his students in, in, you know, in dealing with uh, our poor writing skills and research skills and all those other things. And uh, he was, he was uh, patient and generous. And uh, I made an A in his course when he said that, at the beginning of the class, most people won't. Uh, most people will, will just fail out. And he was right. I mean, we started with a class of about 15. I think at the end we had about seven. And um, it was a really challenging course. Uh, but and, and he would hand you back your paper. And he took the time to go through your papers and mark out poor writing and change it and, and really try to hone your skills. It wasn't just uh, an exercise in research. Uh, Fafudis was interested in getting you to write better. Uh, he assigned, for example, Strunk and White's The Elements of Style, so you can learn how to write. Uh, these are things that very uh, beneficial things that I still look back on well over 20 years ago and think, you know, that was, that was a, a turning point in what I wanted to do. And so uh, I wrote some papers uh, as an undergraduate. I wrote one on uh, the, the war with Mexico and the lead-up to the war with Mexico. And I, I was interested in James K. Polk. And I'll talk about Polk in a minute and tie it into the, the true flag with Stephen Kizer's book. But uh, I also wrote a, a paper on the Platt Amendment uh, because I enjoyed this late 19th century period. And uh, the, my paper, embarrassingly, in the Platt Amendment was, oh, this was, just, this was good for, for Cuba and good for the United States. Of course, at the time, and this is actually important in thinking about diplomatic history, at the time... I was a rah-rah Republican, as even you know Tom Woods has talked about. Just about everybody starts with that. You start with this idea. You're kind of a neoconservative because, I mean, that's what's mainstream. You're interested in the, in the good guys going out and kicking everybody's butt. You like, uh, you like this uh, you know, big military establishment, and you just want more wars. We can go out and kick more butt. That's what you think is great. And, and then you start getting more nuanced, and you start reading uh, real conservatives— uh, what we often call the paleoconservatives, the old right, and how they were opposed to uh, you know, foreign policy adventurism. And then you read some of the libertarians, and you start looking at these things. And at the time, when you start getting into the stuff, your first reaction to that is, these guys are just a bunch of pinkos. There's a bunch of leftists out there, because that's what you initially get when you start talking about anti-imperialism. You get the leftist perspective. And the left does love anti-imperialism. But so does the old right. In fact... If I could encourage anyone now to do anything in history where you could kind of exist in the mess of what is the modern academy and what the left is made of it, it would be diplomatic history. And the reason being is this. <clears throat> you can be a libertarian 
and still exists in the diplomatic history area. Because you're going to find common ground with the left. You could be an old right conservative and still exist in this anti-imperialist kind of strain of diplomatic history. You could do that and still be comfortable. Um, because that field is dominated in so many ways by the anti-imperialists. When you go out and you start reading the historiography of, of uh, modern diplomatic history, this is what they write about. Now, the right and the libertarians are going to take a different position on anti-imperialism than, say, the left. The left will often look at this in terms from, from a Marxist perspective. You know, imperialism is bad because it's greedy capitalists going out and colonizing the world. Uh, even you could, you could even kind of exist within these Latin American historians who don't like American imperialism. Uh, and, of course, for us, it's a different perspective. We don't like American imperialism because we see it as dangerous to the United States, uh, to, the, to the security of, of the American uh, Federal Republic, uh, to the security of the American economy. Uh, not because we think that and it's in dangerous to liberty. Not because we think that uh, you know it's 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 these greedy capitalists going out. We're all for that. I mean, we we want American markets. We want things to flourish. We want people to get to make money and and do well. But you can coexist together. So if you want to get into a field, get into diplomatic history. Now, unfortunately, diplomatic history is a dying field. It's one of these traditional fields. That is going away, kind of like military history. Diplomatic history is that way as well. Uh, it's, but you could do it, uh, and, and a lot of times even now diplomatic history is getting into the three uh, pillars of the modern historical establishment, which is race, class, gender. Uh, so you know th that's going to be a problem if you're not writing about the impact of imperialism on uh, you know, uh, uh, lesbian uh, African-American women. Uh, maybe you're going to have a problem uh, in, in the field. But you could still do it uh, and still find a comfort zone if you want to do diplomatic history. And looking, I mean, it's too late for me now. But going back, I think I should have done that instead of some of the political stuff I did. Because, you know, political history is definitely um, a field where if you're not doing race, class, gender, you're not going to get a job at the academy. Uh, this is just the way it works today. Um, so maybe with, uh, with diplomatic history, you, you could have had a, a different angle. So if I could encourage anyone out there who listens to this podcast who wants to do advanced studies in history, do diplomatic history. It really is a field that you could exist and perhaps champion the libertarian cause or the old right cause, whatever your you know, paleo-libertarian, paleo-conservative, whatever your, your, your interest is there, you could do it and you could make some headway. You could probably get a university job. Uh, and that would be great uh, because then you could get students. I mean, you could advance the kind of the if if you're if you were interested in foreign policy because of Ron Paul, you could advance the Ron Paul angle on foreign policy, and that would be fantastic because again, you find common ground with these leftists. So, I, I want to talk about this Stephen Kizer book, The True Flag. And Stephen Kizer is a great historian. He's written uh, a, a several interesting books. Um, this one is included in that, but previous books are uh, Overthrow uh, and All the Shah's Men. So that's, if you want to look these things up, it's Stephen Kinzer, K-I-N-Z-E-R, Stephen Kinzer, and uh, you can get those. But this True Flag is his most recent tome, and it focuses, the subtitle is Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of American Empire. And so this is all about the Spanish-American War. And the debate over whether we should go to war with Spain over Cuba and the Philippines. 
and what that really means for America. And he says this is the beginning of American imperialism. And, and first of all, Kinzer does a marvelous job of, of storytelling. Um, Overthrow is one of the richest books in diplomatic history I've ever read. Most of the time, you know, diplomatic history can be kind of stuffy. Uh, but uh, he is a good writer, and of course that comes from his journalism background. He's a good writer, and someone that you, you can fly through the books. They, they are just so well written, uh, and they read like a novel more than uh, a, a history book. And I think that's another thing. You know, Shelby Foote used to talk about that. If historians could actually learn how to write, we'd be better off. Because you go out and you read these dense, pedantic history books, and they're awful. And, and it's, you have to slog through them. And, and of course, you know, we think that's, uh, well, that's academic. Uh, that is, uh, that's what we have to do. We have to make this difficult to read for the masses because us intellectual historians have to have something to chew on. It doesn't have to be that way. Uh, you know, the reason Shelby Foote was so good is because he wrote books that people could read. Uh, you know, his, his, uh, his multi-volume series on the war is, is just a fantastic read. It's like reading a novel. And that's what you need to do as a historian. Write books that people can actually read. Write in a popular style so people actually want to go out and digest the stuff. And then that, that might encourage them to go out and read different books. And so this is, again, what interested me in writing popular history because you get a wider audience. If I wrote some pedantic uh, you know, monograph on some obscure historical figure, sure. I mean, this is what historians do. And uh, you can go out there and you know get that published at, a, at an academic press, and and uh, you know you're going to have uh, uh, like five people read the book, uh, you know five people will cite it, uh, and then a lot of people will cite it without even reading it, and so you know th this is where you run into academic history. But Kinzer has done such a good job writing these readable books, and of course if you want background into uh, American problems in the Middle East, read all the Shaw's Men. I mean it's just fantastic, and he gets into that in Overthrow as well, but. The true flag is a little different perspective for him because he's going to a period of time in the 19th century when American foreign policy in terms of what we're going to do with our, our perspective on the world had not yet been solidified. Uh, and so this is a period when people are talking about what is, Amer what is America's role in the world? Are we going to be the, the big guy on the block? that wants to go out and, and engage in this type of imperialism that had taken over Europe. I mean, you look at the 1880s when Africa was divided up. You look at what's going on in the world in the 1890s when there's a rush for uh, Asian colonies, whether it's China or um, even into the early 20th century in India. You know, as you start looking, of course, India was being colonized before that. But, I mean, you have this rush for colonies. And uh, this is the second wave of imperialism. The first wave was, of course, the Americas. And so now you have the second wave, and you're looking at other places. Africa was carved up by agreement, which was amazing, uh, because that had never been done before. But uh, now is the United States going to get in this game? Uh, and, of course, the low-hanging fruit in this were the Spanish. The Spanish still had some of their colonial possessions from their vast empire that they had created in the 15th and 16th centuries. And so now are we going to go out and cherry-pick these easy places like Cuba and then later the Philippines? You also have Guam and Puerto Rico and uh, you know places like that. But are we going to get those remnants of the Spanish Empire? Of course, they're on our back door, 
and so why not was the thought was the imperialists. You know, we, we're not going to get involved in Africa. Asia is a little bit too far away. Though I want to make a point, when Kinzer, when Kinzer says, you know, this is the beginning of uh, American imperialism, I, I tend to disagree with that in, in one way. But uh, are we going to go out and get these things? Uh, and so he does a marvelous job giving you both sides of the story. And what you find, and, and in fact, you know, he, he talks about Teddy Roosevelt, who was, of course, a dominant pro-imperialist force. Uh, people like Henry Cabot Lodge, uh, who was the great um, Republican imperialist from New England. Uh, William Randolph Hearst, whose uh, yellow journalistic enterprise there in New York with his New York Journal uh, really began this idea of yellow journalism. But, of course, Hearst, coming from the, uh, the mining uh, background, his, his father, uh, George Hearst, made millions of dollars in mining in the West. And then the, uh, William Randolph Hearst, uh, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, as in, builds this wonderful house in California, Hearst Castle, if you've never uh, seen it. But uh, he makes a lot of money, more money, in the newspaper business. And on the other side, you have people like Mark Twain, the author from the South, uh, Booker T. Washington, the uh, African-American educator who helped found Tuskegee Institute, and also Andrew Carnegie, the, uh, the industrialist. But not only that, you have labor leaders and all kinds of people. He brings out some very obscure people. One of, one of the interesting ones was a guy named Adolf Meyer. Uh, Adolf Meyer was a German-Jewish confederate uh, in Louisiana. And this is kind of, you know, he, there's an Adolf Meyer uh, school, from what I understand, in Louisiana. I wonder how long it's going to take for that one to be changed. Uh, I don't know if they're going to be able I mean, uh, the, the social justice crusaders, I don't know if they're going to go after Adolf Meyer school, though maybe because it's the first is Adolf, they're going to say, well, here's the proof. Uh, here, here we got, uh, here's, here's the proof. These guys were all neo-Nazis before they knew it because here we have Adolf, uh, and he was a Confederate, uh, but of course he was Jewish, and you did have a number of Jewish Confederates, but he's Jewish, and so I wonder how they're going to square that one up, you know, going after this guy, uh, and uh, he was an anti-imperialist, and he, you know, he wasn't. Uh, you did have some Southern anti-imperialists who used race as a reason. Uh, they didn't want to uh, to uh, get into this uh, this war because, of course, you know, you're going to be absorbing these uh, non-white peoples. But uh, Meyer never said anything like that. His his position was, you know, I don't want to do this because uh, it's going to destroy liberty in the United States. I mean, we we're we're about government for for the people, and um, which of course was. You look at uh, when you talk about Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, government of the people, by the people, for the people, and he's going after self-determination in the South. But regardless, um, this guy's saying this is against self-determination, so we shouldn't be going out there and and waging war on these peoples around the world uh, because we're we're not giving them their government back. I mean, we're we're controlling them. So, uh, and Kinzer does a nice job of uh, of bringing these uh, these people out. These obscure people, but uh, you know, if you look at the list and what he gave you there, I mean, Mark Twain was not a conservative. Uh, Booker T. Washington uh, was not really a conservative, though. Uh, I think that Washington was an interesting, very interesting figure in the late nineteenth century. Uh, if you've ever read his book *Up from Slavery*, um, his perspective on uh, the pre or the antebellum period, you know, the, the pre-war period in the South. Is quite interesting. He's born a slave, and then, of course, his perspective on uh, what happened after the war and his his work ethic and other things. You know, this is why I put him uh, in my book, uh, "The Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes," 
because Washington was is such an example um, that I think everyone should look at uh, in modern America when we're talking about you know such tense race relations today and other things. You know, Booker T. Washington uh, would be someone that everyone should look to and say, yeah, this is actually how we should do it. Um, not uh, what we're doing today, which is just antagonistic. Washington was different. I mean, it wasn't that he wasn't interested in advancing the cause of African-American interests in the United States, but he did it in a different way. And I think that's, uh, that's something we can all learn from. And maybe I'll do a podcast just on Washington at some point. And then you got Carnegie, um, who was you know, one of these industrialists. Um, another man, you know, rags to riches story. Um, I think Andrew Carnegie is a very interesting fellow, uh, but he, he wasn't, I mean, he was conservative, uh, without a doubt. Uh, but, you know, he was a different kind of conservative, um, but he was against the war. He was against the Spanish-American War, and uh, he was against American imperialism. And so you have this dichotomy, and again, this is where you initially think, well, all these people are just leftists. I don't want to be in that group. I mean, these leftists are just, I don't like them. Uh, they're, they're kind of strange. Uh, but you find that there are conservatives. Uh, you know, Claude Kitchen, one of my favorite anti-imperialists from the South, from North Carolina, Claude Kitchen, uh, this guy uh, who opposed American expansion. He, you, had, you had more imperialists in the South than you didn't. But you did find these pockets of these anti-imperialists. You know, Claude Kitchen was one of those guys uh, against uh, American entry into World War I. Uh, so you have them. Uh, he doesn't bring up, of course, Claude Kitchen in this, in this book, but Kinzer doesn't. But uh, it, it's such a, you know, you find all these obscure people, and all of them are just waiting to be written about. You know, Adolf Meyer has never had anything written about him except for one paragraph in Kinzer's The True Flag. That's it. So you can go out there and, and uh, do these kind of things and find these people and write about them. I mean, that's a fantastic thing. Um, and so, you know, Kinzer's point that this was the, again, marvelous book, go out and read it, but his point that this is the first episode of American imperialism, I think is wrong. And I go back to Polk, James K. Polk and the Polk administration. And again, I embarrassingly wrote a paper when I was an undergraduate, my, my uh, junior year, actually is my sophomore year. Then I expanded it out my junior and, and, and senior year, um, where I said that, you know, Polk really wasn't aggressive in the, in the war with Mexico in the lead up to that. That, that wasn't Polk being aggressive. This way, I, took, I took the Polk position that, you know, American blood has been shed on American soil in this uh, war with Mexico. And I, and I took the claim that, yeah, this was American soil. Uh, and and Mexi- Mexico was being aggressive, not the United States. And going back and looking at that, I mean, my gosh, I was just, I, <laughs> it was embarrassing. But... Again, I'll say, you know, Dean Fafudis was so kind and patient. And he actually helped me out here. He said, well, you know, take that Calhoun position with this. Calhoun was against the war and expand that out and do some things with that. And so um, it was a great exercise in learning how to do, how learning the craft. But more than anything else, what, I, what you gather from Polk, and there, Norman Grabner wrote an excellent book on this entitled Empire on the Pacific. And uh, the real key for Polk in going after Mexico was not Texas. And it wasn't even, you know, this disputed territory. And when you look at Polk's foreign policy, of course, the all of Mexico slogan, I'm sorry, all of Oregon slogan was used quite often. Uh, There was also the all of Mexico slogan eventually that uh, didn't work out. But the all of Oregon slogan, you know, 54, 40 or fight. Uh, And so people look at that and, you know, Frederick Merck wrote, uh, famously wrote some books on that and. Uh, you know, you look at that and say, well, this is, you know, Polk trying to get Oregon, and this is his, 
This is the key, the Pacific. But the real jewel was California. You know, even before Polk uh, tried to goad Mexico into a war, he had sent John Slidell. Now, John Slidell is much more famous for being um, uh, involved in the Trent Affair, which uh, took place during the war, the, the, the war between the states, or the Civil War, War for Southern Independence. Um, he, John Slidell was, was seized off the HMS Trent by the United States Navy. And then, of course, that created an international outrage. And uh, so Slidell's famous for that. But John Slidell uh, was also sent to Mexico at one point to acquire California. Before we ever went to war with Mexico, uh, you had John Slidell down there. He was authorized to spend millions of dollars. I want to say it was somewhere around $30 million. $30 million to acquire California. And he was given assurances, and so was the Polk administration, by the Mexican government that Slidell would be negotiated with, that they were actually, go- yeah, we'll sell, me- we'll sell California to you. Uh, and, of course, you've got to remember the Mexican government at this point is very unstable. You have, uh, you have Santa Ana down there in and out of power. Uh, you've got uh, the, the Mexican government always in turmoil. And so when Slidell shows up, uh, the Mexican government refuses to negotiate with him. And so Slidell says, okay, they, they won't talk to me. So then Polk has a choice. He can either uh, just forget about California, which he's not going to do, or he can go the Mexicans into a war and then he can take it, which is exactly what he did. Uh, and so when you look at why Polk wanted California and why there was such a drive, you know, whether it's Oregon or California, why there was a drive for these things, it was, as Grabner pointed out, an empire on the Pacific. And there were, pe- there were voices against this in the 1840s and then into the 1850s. Uh, there were voices against this in 1848 when the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo added uh, California and all that Mexican session to the United States. And they were saying, you know what, if you get California, if you acquire California, we're going to have Pacific Wars. And we don't want that. And so here you have Kinzer saying, this is, this is the debate that forged American foreign policy in the Spanish-American War. I would actually suggest it took place about 50 years before that when we acquired California. Because you're already seeing people saying, well, do we really want to have California? And do we really want to have interest in the Pacific theater? Because that's what the point was. Getting California opened the United States to Pacific trade. Getting Oregon and, and the uh, Vancouver area uh, opened the Pacific to the United States because now we can we have a Pacific port. We have a deep water port on the Pacific. We can go out there and we can start trading with foreign powers in the Pacific. And guess what? These people who were against this expansion into California were right. Not only did California, acquiring California, bring us trade with the Pacific. It brought us Pacific Wars. The Spanish-American War was the first foray into Pacific Wars. So you've got the Philippines. Now, what's interesting about that, of course, we're supposedly going to war with the Spanish because they blew up the USS Maine in Havana Harbor. And uh, you know, Cuba was, uh, when you look at Hearst in Yellow Journalism and what he's writing about these poor downtrodden Cubans, and uh, how we need to support these people, and uh, you know how this is really problematic. The Spanish are going in and setting up concentration camps. We've got to help these Cubans. 
Uh, but our first target in the Spanish-American War was not Cuba. It was the Philippines. Teddy Roosevelt, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, tells George Dewey to st- steam out to the Philippines and take that. If we have war with Spain, go get the Philippines. So here is our first foray into a Pacific War. Now, also, even before that, You've got the Hawaii situation, which Kendra does a nice job writing about in Overthrow. So you've got the Navy in Hawaii, and we've got uh, Pearl Harbor. We've acquired that even before the Spanish-American War because it's a refueling point. So we've, we've negotiated and acquired Pearl Harbor, and then, of course, that leads to the overthrow of the Hawaiian government by American and British sugar interests and in, uh, in fruit interests in Hawaii. And so now we've got uh, you know, a, ta- a mess there. Uh, and But now we've steamed into the Philippines, and we've taken the Philippines, so we've got a foreign war. And lo and behold, from 1899 to 1902, we're fighting in the Philippines. This is the first American exposure to tropical warfare. Here we are in the jungles of, the, of, uh, of Asia fighting against people seeking self-determination. And so I could suggest that actually California led to all this, and the debate was there about these specific wars. And, of course, you take your pick after that. Uh, After the Spanish-American War, we're fighting in in the Pacific several times. You've got uh, American interests in World War II. You've got the Korean War. You've got the Vietnam War. Uh, We're still embroiled in problems in the Pacific and Asia. You've got uh, the Boxer Rebellion where we send troops in as the uh, the Chinese try to resist American and uh, European interests in China. You've got uh, the traditional uh, wave there. Even before that, I think it's also interesting that something that isn't often mentioned is the 1860s involvement by the United States in Japan. Uh, so here we are long before you've got the Spanish-American War and uh, an interest in the Philippines and, and Hawaii, and you've got Americans steaming into Japan uh, and, of course, uh, you know, m- helping modernize the Japanese. And they're going to become our foes at one point. Now, of course, American allies. But, uh, you know, this leads to um, the samurai insurrection in Japan as they start to modernize and Western influence there. And the United States was very much behind that. So uh, you can't, yeah, I mean, the real debate was over California. It was really over California in, uh, in the 1840s and then into, into the 1850s about what America was going to be in the Pacific. Were we going to have a Pacific empire or not? And so this, this book by Stephen Kinzer is just, it's wonderful. Go out and get the true flag. It's a, it's a marvelous read. And go out and get his overthrow and all the Shaw's men as well. They're just fantastic books, fantastic reads. And it'll give you a very nice background on, for example, the, Iran, the Iranian problem. Why are we so worried about Iran? Where did that all come from? Well, it came from CIA influence in, uh, in the 1950s in Iran. And then uh, when you look at American influence in Latin America and how all that, was, how all that came about, and overthrow, he does a nice job of that. That's another area where you could kind of, you know, be a libertarian uh, Latin American history and, and look at, you know, what the United States was doing in Latin America. And another, you know, kind of wide open field there for people who want to get into the profession, the historical profession, but avoid all the pitfalls of getting into, you know, say, American political history uh, because you're going to run into all the problems with that. So uh, there are some fields out there where you could really do some work, some good work, and advance the uh, the the interests of libertarians and uh, you know our, our uh, particular worldview of uh, you know anti-imperialism, anti-intervention in foreign policy, anti-war, these type of things. 
Uh, so I would highly recommend uh, you do that. But again, uh, read Stephen Kinzer's book. Uh, go out there and uh, and look at this diplomatic field because it's it's wonderful. It's so rich. So many things you could do with it. So many different areas. And uh, you know this this early American involvement in California, I think, is the real jewel, the real gem in understanding where America started going off the rails in terms of its uh, foreign policy. And uh, you know Polk more than uh, more than McKinley in 1898, and more than uh, you know the late 19th century or the the progressive impulse in the early 20th century really fueled this drive to expand into foreign countries. Uh, so that's my position on it. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show, and I'll see you next time.